With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, the supply and demand balance issues are expected to improve for almonds. We'll tell you why. And also keeping weeds in mind after a troubling time in 2023. But our top story today, weather. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey looks at mountain snowpack accumulations to begin 2024 in some western ranges and the potential for more as the winter snowpack season continues. A long way to go in California and unfortunately that theme is being repeated in other areas of the west although not quite as critically as in California. We see snowpacks that are closer to two-thirds of average in states like Utah and in Colorado. Not certainly a disaster at this point and we're still getting by on that abundant moisture that hit all areas of the west a year ago in 2022-23 but it does indicate that we would like to see a little bit of a boost in the storminess and the snowpack as we move through January and beyond. We will hit the halfway point for most of the western U.S. at some point during January. I think we're going to start turning the corner in some areas over the next couple of weeks, but we have a long way to go to get back to even normal given this slow start to the western winter wet season. Montana's the latest to now have allowed the sale of 15% corn ethanol blended gasoline, but the holdout, the nation's trendsetter in new vehicle emission standards, California, still says no. Renewable Fuels Association Senior Vice President for Industry Relations and Market Development, Robert White. E15 was approved by EPA and the first station opened clear back in 2012. So we are now almost 12 years into the process of trying to get all of the states approved to offer E15 and California remains the last holdout. But how can the state that prides itself on such tough auto emission standards refuse consumers a lower carbon renewable fuel? They've been really focused on their low carbon fuel standard and expanding that. And of course, their interest in electric vehicles. But again, it, they can set whatever goals they want emission wise, but don't exclude the liquid fuels from helping out in the interim or the long term and don't uh, stop innovation and technology at the same time. And until the California Fuel Policy Setting Panel changes its stance. No action by the California Resources Board is, is keeping the fuel price artific artificially inflated, but at the same time causing more pollution than is necessary. White says ultimately RFA expects California to become the 50th state to OK E15 sales as an interim step to bring down emissions and the highest gas prices in the nation. Combining technologies like satellite data and on-the-farm sensors are helping with carbon sequestration. David Geiger has this report. Watching soil carbon levels is a new part of the farm business and farmers need a way to find out those numbers. Companies like Earth Optics are mapping farm acres by satellite and then compiling them alongside soil samples its CEO, Lars Dierut, says they just passed a million acres. We have a set of sensors that we attach to ATVs, and our technicians go out to a field or ranch. They take soil samples, or we also measure compaction, uh, and so they'll use penetrometer in that case. They take soil samples, um, they take other measurements, but then they also drive over the field with a set of sensors. And then we combine those soil samples, the sensor data, together with satellite data and, uh, and elevation data to make very high-resolution soil maps of fertility, carbon, and compaction. As a soil mapping company, Deerroot says machine learning and cameras in the sky gets more affordable data to farmers. Farmers and agronomists get the level of soil data they can afford, not what they actually want. So. One of our goals was to, set to, to solve that cost problem by 
allowing us to give higher resolution information using fewer soil samples. And that wraps around back to carbon sequestration. Deerud says their technology is an important partner to verify and certify high quality soil carbon drawdown credits. We're actually quantifying the total amount of carbon that's in soils and so we're, we're, we're proud to say we're doing a majority of soil carbon quantification for a range of both carbon offset programs and food and grocery programs that are, are trying to offer more sustainable choices. And so that million acres that we've quantified uh, carbon on, that's about 30 million tons of carbon. That's equivalent to taking 7 million cars off the road. Earth Optics plans to expand their work, hoping to reach 3 million acres this year. Deerud says it's pretty easy to use. For us, it's completely full service. So for our customers, you know, you give us a phone call and we schedule time to come out to your field. And so, yeah, it's it going to be easier from, from a farmer perspective. I'm David Geiger. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news when it's convenient for you, you can subscribe to our podcast and have the statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour and it is available on Android and Apple devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson and we will be back in just a moment. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's national spotlight, Missouri Governor Mike Parson has issued an executive order imposing limitations on the ownership of U.S. farmland by foreign nations. According to Chris Chin, director of the Missouri Department of Agriculture, this order specifically prohibits adversary countries from owning farmland within a 10-mile radius of critical military facilities in Missouri. So what the governor signed today was an executive order that made it to where any land transfer for agriculture land within a 10-mile radius of a military installation in the state needs to be reported to the Department of Agriculture prior to the transaction taking place. If the purchaser is on the adversarial country list, as stated by the U.S. State Department, then that needs to be prohibited. So we at the Department of Agriculture would not allow that transaction to take place within a 10-mile radius of the military installation. But it doesn't impact anything outside of that 10-mile radius of a military installation. Additionally, Chen notes that the executive order grants increased enforcement authority to the MDA concerning all prospective land purchases by foreign countries and businesses. Parsons says that during the upcoming General Assembly, he will be suggesting to provide the MDA with an additional $200,000 and two full-time employees to help carry out those responsibilities. One of the biggest changes that we're going to see is right now, currently, the way that the rules are written is that they're required to report to the Department of Agriculture any foreign ownership land transaction within 30 days after the sale has happened. And so it's going to change it to where the notification process happens before the transaction takes place. Those who advocate for much stricter ownership restrictions often question why a foreign country would have interest in owning American farmland in the first place. There are concerns that individuals with ties to adversarial countries, such as China, will use the land as a way to spy on the U.S. government. Chen reminds us that, from a farming perspective, many of these foreign-owned companies own land within the U.S. in order to properly test the products that they are providing to our farmers. A lot of the countries who sell crop protection tools to our Missouri farmers like to have research that is based in the state for the different climates and growing environments that they have so that they can better serve their farming customers. Also, there are some other companies in other countries that like to diversify their book of business and have, for instance, livestock 
in multiple regions of the world so that if a disease outbreak might happen, that they have that opportunity to continue to have access to quality genetics, dairy products, things of that nature. Parson also stressed that we should not view foreign-owned businesses as enemies, especially those that are owned by allied countries. Because I want to remind Missourians, and especially legislators, that foreign investments by friendly nations brings billions of dollars and thousands of jobs to our state. In the last five years alone, nearly $19 billion has been invested in our state. Nearly 150,000 Missouri jobs are directly supported through foreign-owned Missouri businesses across our state. Missouri has always had and always welcomed foreign investments from friendly nations. That's Missouri Governor Mike Parson. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, the beef checkoff has been a hot topic of conversation recently. Knowing where your dollar goes is important for any investment, including the checkoff. For an in-depth look at how your $1 per head works for you, I visited with Jimmy Taylor, Oklahoma cow-calf producer and chair of the Cattlemen's Beef Board. So I guess the first way I would explain that is taking my personal situation. I pay around $400 a year into the checkoff. If I tried to do what the checkoff does as far as creating beef demand through promotion, research, and education, I wouldn't get very far. I could do zero research for $400. Uh, Education-wise, I could probably do some talking. I could do some promotion, but it would be very limited and local with that $400. But when all producers combine their checkoff dollars, now we can do programs that... uh, that make an impact. You can do research that can move the industry forward. You can educate large groups of people, uh, both consumers, health professionals, nutritionists, and you have promotional dollars to do uh, both social media, radio bits, uh, TV advertisement, and uh, really make a, a change in beef demand. So, one way to gauge that is every five years we have uh, a ROI done on the checkoff, return on investment study. We get a third party to do it at a Cornell University, Dr. Harry Kaiser, did our last one and uh, after running all the numbers determined that for every dollar invested in the beef checkoff, it returned $11.91. Um, one other way to measure that, one of our projects is uh, international marketing. Our contractor there is United States Meat Export Federation. Last year was a record year in that they did in value $11.68 billion worth of exports. If you break that down per fed head, those exports added $447 for every fed head of cattle. And that trickles down to all segments, whether you're stalker, cow-calf, just right on down to all those those people. Those are probably some things I would would point to 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 show you the uh, dollar value of the checkoff. Producer funded and led by producers who volunteer their time, the checkoff works for cattle producers. Taylor shares how volunteering with the beef checkoff has impacted him. Anytime you do anything new, you step outside of your comfort zone, get involved with something else. You learn. You're you're going to learn something. I guess the, the biggest value I get is, is uh, as far as me personally is the, the people I'm around. There are producers from all across America that uh, all have different ways of running their operations. 
Uh, I learn from them as we're, you know, in meetings, outside of meetings, we talk. But also it's the quality of people that would give of their time, volunteer. It's just a really good group to, to be around. Join me tomorrow for part two of this story. For Agnet West, I'm Will Jordan. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. Supply and demand balance issues are expected to improve for almonds. Senior analyst covering fruits and tree nuts for Rabo AgriFinance, David Magana, said that although a few more months of demand challenges are expected, conditions are still projected to improve overall. As we see, like very in acreage, we are expecting those to stabilize in the next few years, so not a lot of new plantings. Given that very in acreage is not expected to increase substantially in the next few years, and yields may be just below the record level in 20. 22. So we're expecting, obviously, starting in 24, 25, production to rebound compared to the past two seasons. But we are also expecting demand to improve in the domestic market and also in a lot of export markets as economic situation improves. Dannon has recently signed an agreement to sell its organic dairy units in the U.S. to a private investment firm. Platinum Equity has entered into a definitive agreement to acquire Horizon Organic and Wallaby from the French food group Dannon. Horizon Organic is the largest USDA-certified organic dairy brand in the world and is a pioneer in dairy beverages, with a portfolio that includes organic milk, creamers and whiteners, yogurt, cheese and butter. The proposed acquisition also includes the Wallaby brand, an Australian-inspired Greek-style yogurt made with organic milk and premium ingredients. The sale of its premium organic dairy businesses is part of Dannon's portfolio review and asset rotation program that was announced back in 2022. The proposed acquisition of Horizon Organic and Wallaby is subject to customary closing conditions and regulatory approval. Soil health management practices can provide a host of different benefits, but sometimes can be difficult to decipher. Soil health educator with the Soil Health Institute, Jessica Kelton, provides details for growers who are interested in participating in interviews to learn more about the impacts and benefits of cover crops and regenerative ag practices. We know that soil health management practices can be a positive benefit to your bottom line, but to what degree? And so those economic interviews allow us to look at a state by state or region and understand how actually is impacting the net farm income for growers who have been adopting these practices. So growers who participate in these interviews, that information is compiled and used to develop some fact sheets that are available for other growers looking to change practices. It's anonymous information, but the key thing for the growers who participate is they actually get an individual report back to them. Last year was a troublesome one for weed management programs for a variety of reasons. BASF Tech Service Rep for the Southern San Joaquin Valley, Kevin Caffrey, said one of the issues has been the loss of more and more of the options for burn downs, especially for grasses. Whether it's fully losing them or things like, for example, paraquat that are being restricted to the point of not being as effective. So I think there's some major concerns with some of our herbicide options for grasses. And I think that's taking something we've been working on is some of our residual approaches of how do we better utilize our residual programs in permanent crops, 
Many times people are putting down a single spray. We've been doing a lot of chemigation work with Prowl H2O to look at summer sprays and how to extend that residual because the best way to control the weeds before it emerges. I think everyone would agree to that. So if we can reduce how many burn downs you have to do afterwards, I think we can help out the overall program. The Farm Employers Labor Service is hosting a one-hour ag employment and legislative update tomorrow. Chief Operating Officer for Fells, Brian Little, highlighted some of what they'll be covering in the free webinar and how to participate. I will be presenting uh, with Rebecca House from the Sacramento office of Fisher Phillips talking about what ag employers have that's going to be new for 2024. And it's a fair amount of stuff we've got this year. The implementation of the final stage of the increases in the minimum wage. We're also in the final stages of the implementation of AB 1066, the ag overtime legislation from 2016. We have an increase in uh, the required minimum provision of paid sick leave for coming up for 2024. And we have a few other dogs and cats that we're going to need to talk about. Um, but the uh, best place to get more information is going to be to go to felt.net backslash webinars. You can sign up for the webinar there and uh, get some details about how you can join. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Another drop for the food price index. That's coming up on this line of hours. The UN's Food and Agricultural Organization says world food prices dropped in December. The food price index, which tracks monthly changes in the prices of globally traded commodities, averaged 188.5 points in December, which is down 1.5% from November and 10% lower than December of 2022. For 2023, the index was 13.7% lower than the average value of 2022, with only the International Sugar Price Index higher during the period. The Cereal Price Index rose 1.5% from November, but the yearly index was 15% below 2022. The Sugar Price Index dropped 17% from November, but still finished 15% higher than December of 2022. The Meat Price Index dropped 1% from November, hitting a level of 2% below December 2022, and the Dairy Index rose 1.6% from November. This is the AgNet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the AgNet News Hour. Well, are you like a lot of the nation and went into debt to buy those holiday gifts? Are the bills now flooding in and are you broke? Well, what can you do? Gary Crawford has answers in this report. Wow. It was only a month or so ago that holiday gift shopping. The cashier feels no pity as she totals the amount. Depleting this year's savings from what was my bank account. Ouch. Merry Christmas. Yeah, at least he paid cash, but are you one of the millions of us who did not really have the money to buy a lot of presents but went ahead and used the credit cards to do it anyway? So now you have to kind of face the mess that was made during the holiday season. This is a familiar thing for many people. It's the Reality Bites situation, according to Ohio State University Extension financial health expert Amanda Woods, because instead of holiday cards and catalogs in the mailbox this month, it's the bills. Indeed, The holidays are over, but now you're stuck with the debt. Yeah. Now, back in November, we heard from Amanda about not going overboard, and she warned us in a conversation with me. She said, don't go into serious debt for the holidays. People don't do what you say, do they? Right. No. 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 (laughs) But she says it's no laughing matter when these debts begin to jeopardize your ability to stay in your home or keep it warm or keep the lights on or buy food. So she says it's time to get real. Take a look at the money you've got and the bills you've got and pay the essential bills first. If there's something left over, try to get at paying those credit cards down, if at all possible, because the interest on those cards will eat you up. 
Now, if paying on those cards is just not possible and you are in a real mess, Amanda says, do like that old 1966 Four Top song advised. Reach out. Reach out. Reach out. Reach out for me. Find a financial advisor. Many places offer these services, so look locally and see if you can find some kind of support that can help you reorganize your finances, that can help you understand the financial situation that you're looking at, and they can help you create a plan to help you get out of it on the other side. So don't wait until it's hopeless. Don't wait until you feel like you can't get out from under it. Deal with it now. Find somebody now. Find that support, and they can kind of help you carve your way out. However, Amanda is very adamant about not paying for that kind of help if you don't have to. If offering pay me this and I can help you then pay down the rest of your debt I would be leery of that now yes there are legitimate firms that do charge to help you get your finances under control but a lot of these services can be offered for free if you qualify so you really need to look into those options and one of the first places to look would be your local extension office we offer a lot of classes and we also partner with financial advisors in many states that can help you kind of navigate these things and there's no fee involved generally. And Amanda Wood says don't repeat the same disaster again this year, you know, starting next November. Don't go overboard on spending during the holidays. Listen to the station next November. We'll have Amanda back making that plea. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. USDA's Farm Service Agency is known for a variety of farm programs and loan offerings, but few have realized how diverse its coverage area and offerings are. Rod Bain reports. The scope of coverage and service provided by USDA's Farm Service Agency is not lost on its administrator. Zach Ducheneau. There are 2,100 plus county offices around the country, 51 state offices, and we've got about 10,000 employees out there. However, some may not grasp the comprehensive coverage of FSA, such as its service area outside the contiguous U.S. The Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, Guam, Hawaii, Indian country, Indian reservations and tribal nations all around the country, even up into the Alaskan native villages. It's a pretty diverse set of stakeholders that we serve. Or the number of its programs and offerings. We deliver several dozen programs to over 3 million producers and also have about a $30 billion direct and guaranteed loan portfolio. So it's a really big and meaningful part of the rural ag economy. As Administrator Ducheneau points out, because of the program and client diversity, FSA offerings are approached not as one size fits all. He uses the Conservation Reserve Enhancement Partnership, CREP, program as an example. In Colorado for the signing of the Republican River CREP agreement. In that agreement, we're helping producers enroll in this conservation program as a means to transition away from irrigated practices that they were going to be forced out of anyway because of water compact issues. So it helps them make that transition on their terms, realize a rental income, get some incentive payments to help establish a vegetative stand, and transition into the next iteration of agriculture on their operation. Flexibility is also reflected in adjustments to existing and creation of new Farm Service Agency programs. For instance, the Emergency Relief Program. During 2020-2021, as part of the climate-related weather anomalies that we're seeing, you know, derechos, atmospheric rivers, 
polar vortex. We had to find new ways to define the climate reality that we're living in. ERP was a solution to deliver to producers who had adverse impacts that outstripped their risk mitigation strategies. And in that program, we were able to use information that we had readily available to provide additional assistance to producers, both in the crop side and in the livestock side. More information about FSA are available at local Farm Service Agency offices or online at farmers.gov. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The National Agricultural Law Center, based in Arkansas, called 2023 a year of significant developments and changes on the legal front. Harrison Pittman, director of the Ag Law Center, says there are a lot of issues they'll be keeping a close eye on this year. I think the Endangered Species Act, and particularly its relationship to the pesticide registration and re-registration and how that looks going forward, I think that's one that we're going to spend a tremendous amount of time on in 2024. It was a big deal in 2023, but that is a major shift in that part of the ag industry, and I think it's one that's going to continue in a big way in 2024. I would keep a close eye on the litigation side with respect to pesticides. There's still quite a few cases going on. They're not all being decided the same way, but there have been a few over the last couple of years, and at least one recently, where the verdict has been very financially significant, at least before appeals take place. The waters of the U.S., or WOTUS, will be something to watch in the new year. I would keep a good eye on that one. That whole issue is important, but the traditional part of it, like the EPA and Corps of Engineers jurisdiction of what is the water to the United States, that will remain important. The part that I would watch is what is happening in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court decision in the Sackett case that came out in uh, spring of just last year. Because I think that can trigger activity in state proposals that cut both ways. The aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision on California's Prop 12 will be another legal issue in 2024. The third one that would be really important to watch is the fallout in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision on Proposition 12, which is the California Animal Welfare Law, that basically opened the door up to the degree to which states might be able to regulate what would otherwise often be considered commerce that would otherwise be left to the U.S. Congress to regulate. So I think that could spawn a lot of legislative proposals, both agriculture-related and non-agriculture-related, and probably will on since we're coming into sessions around the country now that we're getting into January. I'd expect that to pick up. Foreign land ownership, also something to watch this year. We're going to see several states advance bills again this year because there's been numerous federal proposals, but they really haven't had a good vehicle yet legislatively to get enacted. I would expect something at the federal level to be enacted as potentially part of the farm bill process. They could happen there, or parts of these federal proposals could find their way into an appropriation deal, should we be able to get one, hopefully without a government shutdown. That's Harrison Pittman, director of the National Agricultural Law Center. This is the Agnet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Fellow farm broadcaster Susan Littlefield was in Tucson, Arizona at the Water Street Edge Conference, and she's been covering that for us. There she talked with Eric Snodgrass, the principal atmospheric scientist for Nutrient Ag Solutions, and they talked about what to expect for weather this year. Here's their conversation. This new storm system that they keep talking about coming through over the next couple of days, uh, livestock producers are wondering, you know, how intense or is it as intense as, as what they're hearing it could be? It is. It's the best looking storm I've seen in a long time. And uh, so to see one that's this uh, deep as it goes over the mountains and then ejecting in the southern plains, 
mean, we could be putting down snow from Colorado and Kansas to Nebraska and to Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan. I mean, that's a big group of states that really need to see some snow and we need the moisture. So I'm excited to watch it, but it's going to change so much over the next few days. And by the time we get to next Wednesday, when it's really raging east, we'll, we'll finally know what we got out of it. But it's one of a sequence of storms. I think we've got in total maybe five systems lined up to hit the United States in the next 15 days. So it'll be a busy go of it. Is that because of the transition we're seeing from La Nina to El Nino? Well, it's kind of more El Nino's peak, so it's kind of reached its plateau. And this is a part of that. But really, there are some things kind of moving over the top of it that are really helping out. And one of the things is it finally, finally uh, dislodged the, the, the really cold air in Alaska and Greenland. So when we move that out and bring warm air to those places, guess where the cold air goes? It goes here. It goes into the midsection of North America. So what we've got now is finally a recipe to have enough cold air to make the jet stream invigorate coming over the mountains and that's going to produce a couple well maybe three four five systems rolling across the country how much snow do we end up getting this is i mean i'll be honest the night before is when i might have a clue because we'll finally see the track of the low but the potential exists for this one to be a you know a four to twelve incher somewhere that's pretty exciting because we've got areas as you talk to the group um here at the water street event in tucson is there are areas that are extremely dry d3 d4 and have been stuck in those numbers for quite some time yeah one of the things i looked at last night just getting prepped for this was i made a map starting in january of 2000 up until the end of 2023 so that's four years of data i've got parts of iowa and parts of nebraska and parts of missouri and even parts of kansas that are between 20 and 40 inches in deficit over the four-year stretch but you think about that if you got a spot in iowa that's 40 inches in deficit that is that's a whole year plus worth of rain they've missed out in the last four how do we make i mean obviously you got to wait to make that up i mean that's not something that's going to happen overnight to be able to move out of that but this systems that you're talking about coming in and just what we're going to see in the next couple of months might at least help to reduce some of those numbers yeah, what it'll do, hopefully, if we keep the soil temperatures up enough, is get a little bit of that moisture locked into the top, maybe four to eight inches. But the deficits go down three feet, four feet, in some places, tw 20 feet. I mean, there's this really, really dry ground there, which means uh, it's going to take multiple seasons to recover the moisture lost over the last four years. I'm curious, who do we blame or what do we blame? Not the who, but the what do we blame? for the reason we saw such an extended drought in so many areas. Well, there were three La Ninas in a row. We typically think of that as being a catalyst for developing lower atmospheric momentum, translation, fewer systems that roll through. So that's what started this all off. But then even the transition to El Nino was a bit lagged and slow. So we didn't get the full benefit of an El Nino last summer to kind of help start working away on the drought issues. And fall was so dry. So, um, you know, there's a saying we have in, in when it talks about drought it says all signs fail in times of drought which means once you get into it it usually takes something pretty sizable to break you out of it and uh, we have yet to see the massive event that starts to shift everything around but that's what we're always watching for every day something's going to come at some point and we'll make the turn and then all of a sudden you'll be asking me hey can you shut this rain off <laughs> because it'll just you know i mean remember it was 2019 right that was the last when it was just missouri was out of its banks every river that flowed into it all the ice, the damage. I mean, Nebraska took a beating from that particular spring. Uh, so to start to see that coming back in the conversation is not what I want to be thinking about. It's disheartening, but again, like you said, there's such a, a lack of subsoil moisture that at least there's somewhere for this water to go if it comes out of the sky. Yeah, and honestly, I hope a lot of it, as it soaks into the ground, eventually makes it into the Mississippi River because it's still quite low, much lower than it's been uh, in a long time and stayed low throughout this entire fall and now early winter. 
Uh, the river's still, you know, two, three feet below low stage at Memphis, and we'd like to see it back up there about 20 feet above. So this is an ongoing issue, not just in a couple of states, but across some major real estate here in the central U.S. Interesting, the, the phenomenon that weather is. Because if, if, it's, if it's quiet in one area, somebody else is um, building up some excitement as well. And, and I did get a message also from a, from a listener who saw your picture when I posted it on Twitter. It said, what about tornadoes? Why is our spring weather changed so much in the early summer compared to what it was in the past? Yeah, we, you know, we've, we've seen a couple of things in spring. Actually, throughout much of the central United States, there's a bit of a warmer trend in spring. But most of that's in overnight low temperatures. And if you bring that up, you also bring up with it a bit of moisture. So we have seen the last couple of years some pretty active severe weather springs. In fact, this past year, I just think, what, March 31st, 188 tornadoes in a day, a lot of that hitting, you know, the Midwest. Um, and as a result, I mean, 2023, I think, ranks only second to 2011 in terms of hail bigger than an inch in terms of reports. And it's been quite active, which means these planting windows we wish we had wide open, they've been getting tightened up quite a bit. Now, we've been able to outpace that with good planting technology and speed, but the reality of it is, is that uh, there's just no such thing as perfect weather anymore, in my opinion, <laughs> where everybody gets what they want and it, it, it goes well. That's looking into your crystal ball, because obviously we want that window come spring, but we do need the moisture. As you look at the models, is there any hint as to how we could see um, the spring planting come, you know, March, April work for many of these producers, not only in Nebraska, Kansas, but we're talking our neighbors to the south in, in Texas, Oklahoma. Yeah, I think what's probably going to happen this spring is that as the El Nino fades, we tend to do okay through spring on moisture. So I'm not worried about drought getting bigger and bigger and bigger throughout this, uh, you know, this section of, of the plains. What I am concerned about is uh, keeping things cooler longer. In other words, into March or through March into early April before we really break away toward warmer conditions. And I'm not calling for late frost. It's, it's too early to say that. But it's just a characteristic of a fading El Nino. But the thing I'm getting worried about is there's some indications, okay, that when we get later into summer of 2024, we could have one of two things set up. If El Nino crashes quickly, then all of a sudden you're going to hear me start talking about the east-west divide on moisture. We'll find about the 95th meridian and say, hey, east of it, you're probably going to do fine with storms. West of it, that just the aridity grows as you get closer to the mountains. That could be part of the conversation. Or if El Nino lingers and we aren't collapsing it quickly, I worry about ridging across the cotton belt. So from Texas to Louisiana over to, I mean, almost all the way over to South Carolina, somewhere in there you get ridges of high pressure. So they get hot and dry. And then storms run the ridge, go right over the top of it. So from Kansas to Missouri to Illinois, Indiana, we tend to get a lot of ridge riding storms. Nebraska tends to get them as well. And we tend to be happy. So overall, I just gave you two entirely different scenarios that are possible with the same initial starting point, which is an El Nino that's peaked now and will be fading over the next six to nine months. Let's head to South America. How crazy, Eric, was this weather in Brazil? I mean, folks that don't get large amounts of rain inundated with rain, and they've had some decent moistures under there, which should hopefully give them some good crops if they can grow in the wetness. Yeah, so southern Brazil, I mean, we're measuring rainfall in southern Brazil in feet right now. I mean, and it started back in September. They've had massive flooding. You think it's to north central Brazil and, the, you know, the big states everyone knows, like Mato Grosso. You know, you look back over the last uh, not just 40-plus years, but maybe going back 70 to 80 years, we've got places that are the driest uh, on record. And, uh, in fact, the last time I've seen it as dry as it currently is in Mato Grosso was 1942. So, if you know any farmers that were farming in World War II that are still down there, they might be the only ones that could give you something to compare against. And by the way, 
1942, we weren't growing corn and beans in Mato Grosso. So the issue here is that given some of the unprecedented rainfall, total south and then the lack of it north, what's a crop look like? And we certainly know it's been stressed north. The numbers keep coming down on the total produ production, but there's rain there right now. And is it just in time rain for some crops, some of the lady planter stuff? Yeah, maybe it is. But I still think there was so much damage done that the crop is too vulnerable to make a full recovery. And that's why some of the numbers that you see, you know, dropping week after week, maybe probably have the right idea. All right. On a, on a side note, what excites you about the constant changes that we're seeing in weather? I mean, I know you laughed and you called yourself a kind of a, a weather data nerd, shall yeah. we say. But I mean, what entices you and, and what thoughts would you give to those young ones out there that are like, I kind of like this weather stuff? Well, I, what's fun about it is there's a new problem every day to solve, right? It's kind of like farming, right? You wake up and like, what, what do I got to fix or solve or figure out today? It's just that uh, my, my field is the size of a continent. <laughs> so, you know, we, we're, we're watching all of these different areas. And I think the beauty of doing ag meteorology is that unlike other audiences, I mean, ag lives and dies by weather. So I have a very captive audience and a loyal audience that, uh, you know, keeps track of these things with me. And so it's exciting to know that people want to hear what you got to say. So, yeah, for my aspiring, you know, students in meteorology, I'll tell you something. It is an exciting career, but it is uh, something I would tell folks early. Find the niche in it that piques your interest and you'll find other people that will as well. And do well in math and physics. We do a lot of that. <laughs> so you want to be sure that you don't skip out on those math classes. Thank you again to Susan Littlefield and Eric Snodgrass. We stay on the weather theme with expectations for the Western snowpack. Coming up right after this. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour, and now for more news. Snowpack accumulations in the mountain range that provides California most of its water supply are concerning as the new year gets underway. Rod Main has more. A notable year-over-year -year difference in mountain snowpack accumulations in the Sierra Nevada range, California's main source of water. As we started the new year, we had seen an accumulation of only about two and a half inches of liquid equivalency in the snowpack across the Sierra Nevada in northern and central California. And that compares to last year at this time when we had more than 15 inches. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey reminds us that a normal water equivalency year in the Sierra Nevada is 30 inches of snowpack by April 1st. With that two and a half inch accumulation, that is not only far behind average, but it makes it that much more difficult to make this up. With the western water season now at the one-third point. And we have seen a little improvement since the new year began, but even so, we've only seen that liquid equivalency a little above three inches. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, the Midwest Climate Hub says warm and dry was the theme during December in the north-central U.S., there have been exceptions, including a Christmas system that dropped multiple inches of precipitation in certain areas. The region saw both one and two class improvements and degradations in drought status, and concerns are starting to weigh heavily about whether soil moisture will recharge this winter. The next three to five months are expected to follow a typical El Nino weather pattern overall. That means temperatures will lean warmer for the region and conditions will be drier for the northern and eastern states in the Midwest. It's about the 180th week of D1 drought in parts of Iowa, which is the longest stretch since the 1950s. Exceptional drought continues in southeast Nebraska, with some places in exceptional drought for the past five months. Tims have been above normal for the last 30 days. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us.
To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.